This is Language Made Difficult, a non-compositional part of the SpecGram podcast. Welcome to our Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium. I'm Trey Jones, and joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds. Bill Sproul. Hello. Sherry Wells-Jensen. Hi there. And Keith Slater. Great to be with you. And also joining us again on the program is Madalena Cruz-Ferreira. Welcome back, Madalena. Lovely to be here. Thanks for visiting with us again. So let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Our theme for today is linguistic etymology is fun. So I've got three language-related items. Two are true and one is false. And you guys have to figure out which is which. And then after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. So here they are in chronological order. Item number one, the term aphasia was coined in 1864. Item number two, the term antipassive was coined in 1876. (laughs) Item number three. The term isogloss was coined in 1892. Good luck. Oh, great. Keith wants to go first. I'll go first. Okay. Aphasia, 1864. Antipassive, 1876. Isogloss, 1892. Is that what you said? Yep. Okay. Well, I would like to give this exactly the level of thought that it demands. (laughs) I'm going to roll a die. Okay. I'm going to go with antipassive. (laughs) It's the fake. Is the false one. <laughs> that was exactly I'll, how much thought that requested of me. So that's how much I'm going to give it. I'll go next. And first, I would like to applaud Keith for successfully rolling a three-sided die. <laughs> I had a six and divided by two, I'll tell you. Ooh, Mappy. <laughs> I will agree with Keith, strangely enough, but here's my logic on that. Number one, I can believe isogloss was as early as 1892 because it probably started out as like the term for that aspic that people put on hors d'oeuvres or something, you know, that kind of glistens at you. It's like, oh, it's delicious. It has isogloss on it. It was lovely. It was lovely. (laughs) I have to interrupt. Hold on. I do mean that these were all coined with their current senses. I will ignore that because... Sorry. (laughs) I'll just roll again, okay? (laughs) You know, it's also an alternate pronunciation of Isinglass in whichever dialect pronounces Isinglass that way. Number one, I can believe that aphasia, that term, was coined in 1864. The term antipassive, though... That term exists to make your theories work and keep ergativity away so that you're safer from it somehow. So I'm going to say that's the false one. I'd just like to point out that if you agree with Keith, there can be no relative movement in your scores. (laughs) Well, on this dimension... (laughs) <laughs> so keith you want to re-roll or are you bill and i are moving into three-dimensional competition here okay. So. <laughs> okay well keith did roll a die which i thought was utilizing the right strategy really but <laughs> and but and which is a conjunction we need but and i'm going to agree with him because 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 reasons i have reasons i um, want to hear what reasons you're going to utilize for this I have the right reasons. Check this out. So 1864 for aphasia. Yeah, Broca, 1864. That makes sense to me. I'm with that. I think that's probably reasonable. Isogloss, 1892. They might as well have been doing that then. I mean, why not, right? What do they didn't have? They didn't. <laughs> why not? Is your reason? <laughs> they didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Twitter. What else do they have to do? They go from town to town and see how they pronounce things. Whatever. I think good. Antipassive is a word that I always have to look up. And if it had been around that long, surely I would know it by now. So that one is the lie. Here, here, sure. 
My turn, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm going to agree 100% with Sherry. This was ex exactly my feeling. Antipassive is something antipasta. You know, we've been talking recipes before. It's Italian, yeah. It must be Italian and then Englishified in some way, right? So, no, I don't think it was coined that early. Yeah, it sounds to me like a very, very recent term. Whereas aphasia, yeah, it makes sense. 18, mid 1860s, mid 18, 1800s. And Isagloss also, yeah, quite probably in 1892. Assuming, of course, that Trey is not attempting to trick us with things like uh, term Isagloss was coined in 1893. <laughs> <laughs> Which he's certainly <laughs> capable of doing. Oh, or, or it was derived in 1892. <laughs> it's not a pure coinage. Yeah. I, I Isagloss may actually have been coined in 1982. And it's just been inserted into older textbooks to make us think it's been around longer than that. Yeah, yeah that sort of thing. You know? <laughs> and maybe, and maybe Trey was the one that did the inserting. We don't know what his powers are. We know what yeah. he'll sink to, but we don't know what his powers totally are. We never I know blame Pockernoggle. We, we never know what he's going to utilize against us, right? So. That is correct. So I think uh, it's good to be united, you know? Anyway, yes, Sherry and everyone else. I agree heartily with all of you. Okay. Hey, as long as Has we're all this happened? united, let's apply for a raise. We could go on strike. <laughs> we must win, right? Majority wins. This is a... <laughs> <laughs> this is not a democracy. <laughs> of course it is, right? <laughs> History is written by the victors. <laughs> and I don't know why, because there are very few historians named Victor, but apparently that's the way it works. <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, number two is true. Ah! Oh! oh! I lied. Number two is false. But since you all voted for it, I can, oh, I can annoy all of you at once. <laughs> Did you notice how they follow me like sheep? Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's not you. It's the die. I've told you all <laughs> they along. the die like sheep. I've told you for the longest time, you should make your choice before you hear what the items are, because then you can't be led astray. <laughs> Again, in chronological order, the term aphasia was coined in 1864 and is credited to Armand Trousseau, a French physician. And the term isogloss was coined in 1892. And it was credited to August Bielenstein, a Latvian dialectologist. This is interesting. It was modeled on the then new meteorological term isotherm. Isotherm. Oh, nice. I still think it was hors d'oeuvres because, you know, we still have terms for that used in linguistics because... When someone comes up to you with a tray of those hors d'oeuvres with aspic on it, and you don't really want to eat one because it's sitting there and kind of glistening at you and quivering, <laughs> but it's rude not to, that's still called a tense aspic mood. <laughs> oh, that was really bad. You're going to edit that out, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do not inflict that on the public. So you're marking I think it. <laughs> I think isotherm would be a really good name for a superhero. Temperature. <laughs> I have the ability to make the temperature be the same everywhere. <laughs> and when was antipassive yeah. coined? So antipassive was probably coined in 1976 or maybe 1972. Sources differ. Uh, it's credited to Michael Silverstein. And the antipassive is, quote, a mirror image of the passive and is found in Australian languages, among others. And probably, like Bill said, is there just so you can avoid ergativity. I think it's probably necessitated by ergativity. It can only be the opposite of the passive in a different language, right? 
In English, the opposite of a passive is the active, and the anti-passive is not an active. It's it didn't say opposite; it did say mirror image. Right. Okay. I did look okay. up the putatively original paper. I utilized Google Scholar and found it. You know, according to physicists, though, the opposite of the anti-medial passive is the anti-medial passive. That makes sense. The mirror image of a passive. So instead of have been going, it's going been have, right? <laughs> now I know That's what it is. I feel happy. Syntactic mirror image. <laughs> you turn the absolute into an agent or something like that. So you upgrade it. You put it in a position that normally agents would get, I think. I could be completely wrong with that, but they could have mystified the word for all I know. <laughs> all right. That was clear as mud. On to the scores. Oh, unfortunately, my scoring program has broken and uh, <laughs> we have no scores. Oh, I see. Oh, wait. I see. Frankly, that we all won. <laughs> we did win. It doesn't matter. I'm still in second place with 55%. Sherry has regained the lead with 56 Bill and the guests have 50 and Keith continues his move away from Chance, despite using Chance to make his choice. <laughs> it wasn't Chance. I have loaded dice. Ah. <laughs> And so Keith has 45%. <laughs> and so on that sad note, we will close out Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. And after this word from our sponsor, we'll be back with some linguistic news. Wanted. Intern. Inexperienced? Fresh out of school? Need gainful employment? Not ready for, would you like fries with that? Want to add sparkle to your resume while earning nearly minimum wage? Come work for Speculative Grammarian as an underpaid, underappreciated intern. You will gain unique and valuable insight into linguistics, journalism, publishing, and the beverage preferences of high-powered editors. Must be able to take coffee orders in six or more languages. Call 115-511-2121 and ask for Butch. Welcome back, everyone. Those of you who have been following Specgram for the past 50 or 60 years know that two of the major trends in linguistics involve, on the one hand, becoming less sure of the basic categories we use, and on the other hand, trying to make our examples more and more realistic. A century ago, no one worried that we didn't know what a word was or a sentence was. Now we know that both of those definitions are fraught. Also, 50 years ago, we couldn't go out and get huge numbers of natural language examples. We had to sit and make up our own examples, which many of us wish we still could do. Today's news item manages to hit both trends. It experiments with the notion that the basic unit of language is 140 typed characters at the same time that it examines this massive network called the Twitter or something like that for word usage. Now, the Guardian newspaper in England covered this breaking story in its own inimitable British fashion. In its grand tradition, it looked at the language uses of people other than its usual readership and named them all tribes, for example. But the Guardian coverage indicated something that was very exciting, which was that people's word usage could define which group they're in based on word usage. In other words, it's a breakthrough in validating the basic premise of set theory. <laughs> so I went and looked at the article, and my initial observations are, number one, the middle of it is full of very statisticy statistics. <laughs> there are many fine terms. There is what 
It's either a Z score or a Z score, and I'm guessing the latter because it's in italic, so it's fancy. (laughs) The results are actually much, in a sense, they're more interesting than the Guardian description because they not only look at word usage in community, they look at what language features are associated with that word usage-based community. For example, the community that uses acronyms is associated with acronym usage. Brilliant! It is. The community of people that use terms like anapals, possum, and forever is associated with animal-based puns. (laughs) The group that uses edtech and edublogs is associated with amalgamated words. Now, you know, there's kind of a flaw in this because apparently their algorithm does not detect vacuous buzzwords. It just thinks they're amalgamated and therefore amalgamates them in with other things. But the question I have for everyone, since the statistics parts of this were very statisticky, does this still validate basic set theory or is it straying off into being actually informative? As the token mathematician, I feel obligated to respond. <laughs> and the answer is neither. <laughs> the math is terrible. They don't know anything about set theory, I'm sure, and it is not at all informative. Well, that was quick. <laughs> Next. So it really is linguistics, potentially. <laughs> no, no. I want to know who vets these things. All the three authors in the paper appear to be biologists, and their conclusion is that, quote, communities can be characterized by their most significantly used words, and, quote, words used by an individual user in turn can be used to predict the community of which that user is a member, and thus, quote, this indicates a relationship between human language and social networks. And what they didn't say, but they should have, is, we shall call our new science linguosociology. Ah. <laughs> uh. You know, it's bad enough that these biologists are trying to do linguistics and end up computationally predicting sociolinguistics, but it's worse when they can't even get the non-linguistic parts right. Maybe they shouldn't have tried to be so interdisciplinary because I think the network detection algorithm that they used and the math that they used kind of escaped them. Should I go on to the rest of my rant? (laughs) (laughs) Or somebody else want to have a comment first? There was one thing I reacted to there immediately, which was the assumption that Uh, What was it that they say? Users simply want to share everything with everyone. Who's claiming that? Yeah, that was definitely from the the Guardian. That was not in the article. Mm. Yes, it's this tendency we see in the media all over the place, really, to use big words like globalization, universal, all over, world (laughs) things. You, You know, I mean, global anywhere means my local, doesn't it? For everybody. That's what it does. Me, me and my friends, you know, <laughs> that's the way the word is utilized anyway, mm-hmm. in my feeling. Anyway, yeah, this is what I reacted to. Share everything with everyone. <laughs> What's everything? What's everyone? <laughs> well, I think in the way they intended it, though, it's still clearly not true. Mm. Clearly, there are groups of people who are interested in linguistics that are fairly insular. And there would be no point in sharing some of the language humor that we have in the Specgram Twitter feed because people wouldn't understand it. Right? I mean, there's some things that people can't understand, but there's a lot of in-jokes. It just, it's just not funny if you have to explain it. It's still good for people like prunes. <laughs> That'll be our new tagline, the Specgram Twitter feed. It's good for you like prunes. They're indigestible. They're fiber. <laughs> uh, 
intellectual fiber. Mm. Doesn't there have to be something to this, though? Because, I mean, they've got a diagram, figure <laughs> one here, and it's got, you know, a, a big circle with a bunch of solar flares coming off of it. So that's got to mean something. So I was thinking maybe it was spirograph. Didn't yeah, you know how you make those with the circles? It really circles looks like them? a spirograph, yes. <laughs> there are a couple of extra things I want to know about. One is they identify one group as being African-American and using African-American English, but they don't have anything that would seem to verify that these are African-Americans using actual African-American English versus like white suburbanites who are trying to sound like rap lyrics or something like that. In other words, they may not know this, but people have worked on African-American English and half of what they're counting may not be the same, right? You know, they didn't test any of this. They're just, well, I'm looking at that and I can put a label on it, so I will. I think it's important to point out that the labels seem to have been assigned by whoever the author of the article in The Guardian and not by the original authors of the Uh academic paper. Mm -hmm. Well, that's better. It's both better and it's also kind of bad because I looked at the original paper and that's some of the extra data that they had and they didn't label or explain their communities Mm -hmm. like the popular article did, which is a shame because they have some interesting groupings and a little bit of semantic analysis gives some pretty obvious meanings to the identified communities. And I think that actually shows how their analysis is probably wrong, actually. So there's this gratitude and sharing community. Those are the two of the key words. And it has an environmental subcommunity and what appears to be a web design subcommunity and a lawyer subcommunity. And then they identified another gratitude and sharing subcommunity of the gratitude and sharing community. And it's mm-hmm. by far the largest part of it. And then there was also a clearly Christian subcommunity in there. And I think that these actually are the opposite of what they claimed, which is these aren't hierarchical communities. These are people who are in multiple communities mm-hmm. that overlap and they just missed the other community that this person is, the other half of their life. So I don't really think that gratitude and sharing and wellness and all those kinds of things have a lot to do with CSS tricks and typography and fonts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think those are people who are in both of those groups. And they just sort of identified one and then carved off the people who are also in other groups and somehow labeled those as subcommunities. And if they had actually analyzed them, they would have seen that they're not subcommunities. There isn't a, a web design subcommunity of gratitude and wellness. And yeah, it just makes no sense. So I think they completely missed on what they were doing there. Because they didn't take your tweets as a group, right? So, because this caused me to go back and look at everything I ever tweeted to find out what Twitter thinks it knows about me, or at least what The Guardian thinks that Twitter knows about me. <laughs> and then I was thinking, well, what group would that? Like, so is there, in fact, out there somewhere a subcommunity of ukulele playing linguists who like outer space and do whatever else I do? And Because if, if there is, I want to find it. <laughs> Yeah, but that's exactly the thing, Sherry, because if you look for it, you'll find it. <laughs> you know, I have to put all that into one tweet and tweet it out there and then see, you know. Not for their algorithm. You don't have to put it all in one tweet. But yeah, that's the thing that they would do is that they would find the community of linguists and yeah. then identify the sub-community of ukulelists, which isn't a sub-community of linguists. It's a, it is so. It, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'll say bad things about ukuleles later. But no, it's orthogonal, right? I mean, that's the whole point. 
Right. Mm-hmm. It's exactly. not really a community. It's, yeah. It's not a sub community of linguistics. You are in the overlap of two different communities, linguistics right. and ukulele. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of thing that they're finding is they're claiming they have these sub communities that clearly are completely different. Right. They do have common language, but the way they're analyzing it is very wrong. And they did a bunch of other stuff too that irked me. One of the things that they did is they talk about the frequencies of words. And as someone who actually does this kind of computational stuff, to me, that means tokens, right? So if you say the word thing 67 times, that's 67 tokens. Mm -hmm. But they used it as types. So if you say the word thing 67 times, that's one type. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. Oh. And it's clear that they did that because they didn't make it explicit. And I think that's because they may not have understood it, but they made their data available, which was both a wonderful thing for them to do and a terrible mistake because I got to look at it. And if you look at the in-group frequencies, some of them are in the 40 to 60% range, Mm -hmm. right? And so you would be in a very weird and obvious click if 47% of everything you said was the word wonderful and 43% was the word sharing. (laughs) 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 Wonderful sharing. Wonderful sharing. Gratitude. CSS. (laughs) ukulele and so instead what that means is that 47 percent of the people in that group use the word wonderful at some point right so they didn't make that explicit (laughs) at all and because of the way they're doing this they also don't understand small numbers and so they're looking at the frequency of usage in group versus out group and they have a ratio there and then they generate this z score the fancy z score and one of the characteristic words they have of one of the subcommunities is ecodoc and it has an in-group versus global ratio of 562 times, right? It's like, wow, that's really awesome. Mm-hmm. Very distinctive. And it turned out that the in-group frequency was small enough that I could actually see that it was a very small number of people. It was 0.009. That's a very small number of people. Yeah. Less than one person? Well, no, no, no. That's the percent. So it's 0.9%. <laughs> well, <the percent. laughs> but of 329 people, that's three people. Ah. And then I looked at the global frequency, which they mm. had as 1.62 times 10 to the negative fifth. And they said their global sample was 250,000. And that frequency out of 250,000 is four people, mm. which includes <laughs> the three we talked about before. Because they're in the global sample. So they have three people in the group and one other person. And this is on their list of like these things you can use to determine whether somebody is in a group or not. No, four people out of 250,000 people used it. That's noise. Mm-hmm. And I think they just missed putting that fourth mm. person in the group. Because <laughs> clearly they're in whatever group those other people are. Yeah, they just... Oh. So if there's... Let's say it's a word that's not very common. You're You're typing something like... Let's say you're typing utilize, right? <laughs> and you mess up and put two Z's in it, right? Or any Z's in it because it's spelled with an S. Yes. Not for Bill. <laughs> well, whatever, whatever. You, 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 it's spelled you, with a C. <laughs> you you misspell the word in a low-frequency way. It's not a common misspelling of the word utilize, right? right? You represent a very large boost compared to global usage of that misspelling, right? Yep. Because it's never occurred before ever, potentially. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So you are automatically the group of people who use that misspelling. Well, they are looking for multiple terms to define a group. Okay. So you might have misspelled a completely different word at some other time in a random way. And now that'll ping you. What could happen is if you misspell in a non-random way because your Z key is sticky. Ah, right. Okay. That's a relatively low frequency letter. <laughs> right. So if you double Z all the time. Right. Now you are a group unto yourself. Yeah, you're a group. Hmm. <laughs> now, did they use anything to try to filter out bots? I don't think so. Yeah. I didn't see anything about that. Oh, so is there a bot group? That'd be cool. Yeah, that would be. That would actually be useful. <laughs> so they could be recognized. Right. 
and automatically unfollowed. But you'd need to count tokens for that, I would guess. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so what do we learn about, I mean, should we not trust corpus linguistics anymore? We should not trust corpus linguistics done by biologists. <laughs> I mean, if they had used just the tiniest little bit of NLP, and I guess they did use the absolute tiniest little bit possible because they lowercased everything, but they didn't do any kind of normalization and reasonable processing. In one of the groups, it was what looked to me like a Christian sub-community. They had distinct entries for gods with an apostrophe S, where the apostrophe is straight, and then gods with a curly quote <laughs> instead of... And so those are both distinctive, though the curly quote is a little less of a good predictor of your in-group membership. But yeah, they didn't even normalize that and recognize that those two were, you know, the same. Unlikely to be different. Yeah. Yeah. Those are not distinctive. Mm -hmm. And they would have had better statistics if they had combined them. Mm -hmm. Right. I would point out, though, as a general rule, you never trust corpus linguistics. You just assign a probability of validity to it. <laughs> That's all they ask, really. really. Yeah, yeah. I think it's fair enough. That would be fine. Well, the probability here is very low. I mean, we have a bunch of biologists. They can't do math. They can't do linguistics. And they didn't do any biology. Why did they even, <laughs> why did they even show so it? So the probability is low. <laughs> they did discover sociolinguistics, though, which is nice for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah, they fall completely on one thing, which is we all belong to tribes or groups or families or whatever they want to call it, right? That's what I meant when I was saying that if you're looking for something, distinctive feature or distinctive characteristic of something, you will find it. So the difference is in your head, really. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of research like this, because yes. you're guaranteed a result. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I got to start doing biology. I don't publish enough. <laughs> I think there's this growth field about talking about, like, null allo organs. <laughs> because biologists haven't figured those out yet. I mean, they've got the appendix, but that's just a reduced affix. They didn't really null. And functional heads for anatomical projections, right? It's, it, right. It's not actually biology that has the problem. It's anatomy, which has run out of things to say, right? Right. There's they nothing only left to discover. So, yeah. So they need to have null organs. I think we should stop offering all this free help to all these other academic disciplines and go off and just start publishing articles. Because clearly, if they can do it, <laughs> and then we could be in The Guardian and be famous, like whoever these people are. Or even before that, we could be in the EPJ Data Science Springer Open Journal, because Ooh. look what they accept. <laughs> there is a downside to that. I sort of looked at the journal because when I see something like this, I hate to admit it, but I automatically look it up in Beale's list of predatory <laughs> publishers, I did which too. it is not in. I have to, you know, it is not in there. On the other hand, they apparently charge you a fair amount of money to print your paper. So they charge you for printing your well, paper. Well, I think it's probably to cover the formatting and, you know, that kind of thing. But you figure there's more cost efficient methods for this kind of thing, like making a blog and putting the paper on it, you mm -hmm. know? Now, of course, it may have a bunch of peer review, in which case you could still put it on archive or something. And then if it's bad, people will zing you about it, I would guess. Well, that probably doesn't look as good when it's time for tenure review. Yeah, that's a point. You gotta have a journal name. I'm pretty sure that all the you know, any publications I made in Specgram boosted my chances for tenure there. Because it was in an august journal as opposed to just, you know, me blogging it. Hmm. This looks like a profitable business, actually. I'm looking at their charges. The charge for article processing is 
uh, 1,000 euros or its equivalent. Whoa. Um, Holy smokes. Unless your institution is a member, and that's a link. <laughs> And if your institution is a member, then they don't charge you anything for printing your article. So, you know, who knows how many institutions have joined up? I'm sure, Sherry, have you talked to the president about this? Well, the thing is, if your institution is a member and they're willing to admit that. (laughs) (laughs) And I will, of course, rush right out and get the president of the university on the phone. Now, they only have to admit it to the journal, right? Oh, I'm sure there's a list. Isn't there a list? (laughs) Probably. Well, no, here's the list. Okay. Where would you like to know? Australia, 15 members. Let's see. South Africa, Singapore, one. Mm. Go ahead. Look at United States of America, 165. Ooh, that's like three per state. Let's see. Sherry, you're not here. Sorry. You're going to have to pay the thousand euros. (laughs) Bill, too too bad. bad. (sighs) Anyway. (laughs) They do have peer review, though. Right. I almost let people off the hook for not realizing that they've accidentally rediscovered sociolinguistics because it is the European physical journal, right? And they are a bunch of biologists. Okay. But they should have noticed that the math was bad. (laughs) Well, plus it's not that difficult. If you just type in things like word usage network, it would be very hard not to encounter a bunch of the data mining stuff on network analyses that do mention sociolinguistics, right? Actually, I Googled word usage network and this article came up. (laughs) But before it was published, I did it in Google Scholar. I'm not seeing anything super obvious. So does this article have a bibliography? I mean, do they have to cite any references? They do. They have 40 references. 40? Yep. That's a lot. And they're weird, too. They don't make sense. Actually, this kind of smacks of the thing where somebody went to Wikipedia and looked something up and just copied all the references from the bottom of the article. They have an article from 1958, <laughs> Dialect Differences and Social Stratification in a North Indian Village. How the hell is that relevant? Wow. Oh, I didn't see that. They cite Labov from oh. 1966. The linguistic variable is a structural unit. Did they... Did they <clears throat> They cite. Did they read? It? <laughs> yeah, did they read it? Wait, but did they reference their in-text citation for Labov then? Because no. there can't be. No. So this is just stuff that they think is nice. And Chambers sociolinguistic theory. Yeah, they just kind of. Oh, homegirls, language and cultural practices among Latina youth gangs. <laughs> I wonder what would happen if you googled these citations together. Then you'd find whatever they copied the list from. <laughs> oh. Oh, I had to check. Some of them are, in fact, on the uh, Wikipedia page for sociolinguistics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, if no one has any other bile or vitriol to spit out, we'll be back with some prescriptivist confessions after a word from our sponsors. Zero, Zero Morphemes direct. 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 Inexplicable data. Problem tokens. Out of ideas without anyone to turn to. Look no further. Bye, bye, bye. bye. Zero, Zero Morphemes. Zero morphemes turn an implausible analysis into an impressive analysis. We are overstocked and will not be undersold. Get the last 2014 models, half price, zero down, zero APR. Our zero morphemes are top quality, guaranteed, and cover all the major morphological categories. Tense, aspect, number, case, agreement, polypersonal, you bet. You name it, we have it. Plus, if you order now, we will throw in a deflator morpheme. Absolutely free. Russian genitives, not a problem. Watch as you add your new deflator morpheme to the citation form of Kniga and produce Knig. Subtraction by addition. Operators are standing by. Order now. 
Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Now it's time for some prescriptivist confessions, where we break with the party line of linguistics and stray away from the descriptive purity of accepting things in language the way they are and admit to the things that really, really, really annoy us because they are, in fact, morally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or linguistically wrong. I'll start by saying that one thing that really bugs me is when people use periods to indicate negative emotions when texting. <laughs> We've already covered that. Next, period. Fine, period. <laughs> People can utilize their periods however they jolly well please. It still annoys me. Period. <laughs> All right, moving on. Who's next? I want to object to Keith's use of the word utilize. <laughs> because I have to read that word all the time when you could just put the word use instead. And I know this is petty. And I know that most people, when they use that in papers that they're making me, Bill Sproul, read, are putting it in there because it sounds sciencier than use. All right. But I've had to read that too many times. And it tends to go along with other terms like optimizing excellence and leveraging wonderfulness or something like that. So I've just decided I don't like it and someone should swat it in the nose with a newspaper. <laughs> I think you're right. I think use is a perfectly fine word to utilize in most cases. <laughs> I'm just, I'm dreading the day I get one. Uh, it will come out of educational technology. I'll pick up some paper touting the newest virtual gizmo for using in a classroom, and it will have the verb usitate in it. <laughs> and they'll say something like, well, it's usitationality allows us to do this. Ooh, not usification. I like usification. Well, yeah, usification would work too. Utilization, yeah. even better. What was that? Utilization. Utilization. Mm. Oh, the stress pattern in that one's hard. Alism. <laughs> Utilizificationalism. Yes. Mm. Would it be utilization? Utilization. Utilizationalism. This is anti-disutilizificationism. Now it's starting so. to sound like a linguistic theory. <laughs> is this coming out of pragmatics again? <laughs> I wish you guys would quit that. Okay, so you're not allowed to choose pragmatics as your prescriptivist confession. <laughs> All right, does anybody have any others? Yes, I'm prescriptivist about prescriptivists. <laughs> I, think we should ban, I think we should ban them all. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're not entering into the spirit of things here. You have to admit to being a prescriptivist. That's the... Well, I am. <laughs> About what? That's exactly what I just did. You're a meta-prescriptivist. Right. I'm not a... Pre okay. I think that yeah. was an anti-passive of some sort. Anti-prescriptivist passive. <laughs> She's a mere prescriptivist. That's what she is. Yeah. Well, I have one. So recently I said something to my wife like, uh, it's that one laying over there. And she insisted that I should have said lying. And I really dislike, I can't stand this blatant misuse of plain English. I mean, lying means not telling the truth. It cannot refer to prone objects. So I'm sick and tired of people telling me I should be saying lying when laying is obviously the right word. I agree 100%. I have just, I have just abandoned lying is prevaricating, laying right. is being prone. That's it. And whom right. is dead? Get over it. <laughs> 
Number one, we should keep the distinction between lie number one, lie number two, and lie. And in there addition, is no distinction. we should not lose the distinction between lie number four and lie number five, which are the specific versions that index whether the object lying prone is more in a north-south orientation or an east-west one. They're homonyms, I grant you, <laughs> but people keep using the wrong ones. <laughs> oh, I hate that. Which one would you utilize if something was lying on the International Space Station? Uh, I would say it was, let's say, um, extensive. Uh, it was uh, prone-wise extended because it's in a high-tech thing. And so you you need a longer phrase for that. Okay. Yeah, no, 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 no. If we're being pirates, which of course we are, oh, then right. pirates don't lie down in any orientation. Yeah, you know, they can be knocked down. They can fall down. <laughs> but they don't lie down. It, a pirate it, would never do that. It would be strewn. Yeah, you could be strewn. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> if it's disoriented, it's strewn akimbo or something, you know. <laughs> you know it would be strewn astern. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. Strewn enough to three o'clock. Poop word, or whatever that would be. <laughs> Poop word. Arr. Arr. Shiver me strewn a timbers. Well, so we've done good things for the dignity of linguistics here. <laughs> Definitely. I don't think we could stand any more confessions, but... Uh... No, wait, I have something super petty, though. Okay. And isn't that what this is all about? Yes. yes. Pettiness. I... <laughs> I mean, pettiosity. I'm going to utilize my pettiest pettiness. My pettiest... <laughs> what? Hmm, pettiness? I... Utilize when... pettification. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> this whole indefinite article thing is really on my nerves, especially when people take an and substitute a glottal stop. So this whole uh apple thing, uh argument, uh apple, uh annoyance, uh annoyance to me. A <laughs> uh, utilization. <laughs> uh, 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 That's right, Keith. Stop it. <laughs> that word starts with a Y sound. That's not. Uh, yeah. So you have to say a uh, utilization if you're going to uh, say utilization. Uh, my Y starts with a glottal stop, doesn't yours? A uh, utilization. We actually discussed this. I forget the context before. So my home dialect actually allows for glottal stop. <sighs> For uh instead of an, but we were trying to do something. We we're trying to mix something, and I can't remember what it was. But I couldn't do it because the other thing we were trying to do was a register shift, and I can't do it in a high register, so I couldn't do it. But what's wrong with this? <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> what do you mean? What's wrong with it? <laughs> it's an abomination. See, you say a abomination. You will notice that I'm not speaking in my native Texas dialect, <laughs> so I pretty much agree with you. <laughs> I'll consider. I'll give you an answer of whether this is an abomination or not. No, it's not. <laughs> but I have to know what your Bayesian priors were when you rolled that. <laughs> I rolled a five and a six. There's very low odds of getting that. You know, I, now I'm next time we have comprehensive exam questions, I anticipate hearing that sound repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> That's utilized during the grading, not the, not the administering of the exam. <laughs> you know, that's one of the troubles about having an electronic version of the comps, because you can't utilize the fling the papers down the stairs method, which right. used to work really well for me. I was thinking about that. Yeah, that's a good one. To find out who's the best, who lands on the top. Yeah. Yep. Or yep. the other way, depending on, you know, how you're feeling. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, you know what? That's something that somebody whose last name started with a W would say. We should reverse the order because I always sat in the back of the class. <laughs> yes, indeed. Exactly. <laughs> I've got a little cluster of these things that I would gather under the heading of biz speak, and I've been collecting these for a while. Oh, is this going to be painful? Because it is. Let me brace. You, oh. It's going to be really painful, yeah. Are you going to name names of co-workers? Oh, of course not. <laughs> None of the fine people I work with would do such a thing. Okay. There are some unfine people I work with, but we won't name any names. It would be an appalling thing for mm. you to do, Delane. So, so, of course, there's, there's some old ones. Like, one of the ones that really bugs me is issue instead of problem, right? And that's just our friend, the euphemism treadmill. Or another older one that's... um speak to as in someone says i can't speak mm. to that yeah <laughs> then there's some newer ones that really are i i guess i guess you just kind of get used to them after a while and i haven't gotten used to these yet but one that's really been sticking out recently is learnings oh especially oh, key cow. learnings <laughs> yeah i cannot hear that with in my head it's learnings <laughs> we have some learnings about this we will be having learnings no, no, it's not like faux German. It's got a different pronunciation because it's so effing precious. <laughs> learnings. I keep larynx? waiting because I know that learning. Out- <laughs> I know that learning outcomes is eventually going to become learnings. I'm mm. sure of it. No, it shows up on like business self help book titles, yeah. like eight learnings from. Famous administrators or something like that. If analogy with fields comes into my mind, so maybe it'll just eventually become learns. Here are my learns. I have a it's college the, degree. I have many learns. It's the lexical equivalent of Comic Sans. <laughs> oh, there are worse ones yet to come, I think. Perhaps. I know. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have heard these, only if you have to sit on a budget committee, maybe, but there's spend as a mass now. So our second quarter spend is up. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And then some people use ask for request. Like, Mm -hmm. these are my three asks. Mm -hmm. That's from stockbroking, isn't it? I don't know. Fundraising. I think it has a very long history in some particular kind of financial transaction. Okay. Mm. I think my daughter said that when she was two. Well, that's different. Yeah, well... <laughs> it was cute then when she did it. Another one that I've heard is to problem solve. Okay, well that's just object incorporation. That's 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 kind of normal. Yeah. Yeah, not in English. That's like to deer hunt or something. Maybe. I kinda like it. It's like Trey make fun of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I found this one to be about ten times worse, and that is to critical think. Ooh. Ooh. Just go ahead and split the infinitive there. Just put an L-Y on that puppy and fire I know. <laughs> oh. In the opposite direction, we have solutioning. Oh, now that, that, <laughs> that is vomitous. <laughs> Which means to build solutions, of course. Yeah. And then one that has bugged me for such a long time is around instead of about or concerning. And like they have a discussion around something. Mm. That accurately describes business discourse, though. <laughs> well, yeah, but you're not supposed to admit that. That's the problem then. Yeah. <laughs> Politics, really, doesn't it? Okay. And then I got one last one. And this one I looked up and found some interesting facts about. And that's coopetition which is a portmanteau of competition and cooperation. And I looked it up and it's actually has been coined repeatedly. And according to the Wikipedia article for it, 1913, 1937, 75, somewhere in the 80s, 92, 
2000, again, the mid-2000s, in 2013 and 2014. So it's like lexical herpes. I was going to say, it's basically a linguistic infection that comes back every few decades. <laughs> On the other hand, at least it isn't frenemy. Mm. Which is sort of mm. the non-businessy version of that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I hate to admit this, but it's more difficult to feel guilty about making fun of business language because they're in a higher power position. Mm-hmm. That works for me. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Is the word synergy in your list? Ah, ah. that's a little old. Yeah. I know. I know. But it yeah. keeps recurring. You know, you create synergies and you support synergies and all that. I'm sick and tired of that one. <laughs> You use your learnings to synergistically solutionize. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. You utilize your learnings. Oh, right. And you want to impactfully leverage your core <laughs> capabilities for maximum synergy. I think we have to critically think that before we can really go with it. Mm. <laughs> you need to utilize your core competencies. Yes. Oh. <laughs> it's not so bad when business people do it, but when people do it in academia, it just makes me want to cry. <laughs> it really does. Why? What's the difference? <laughs> ah! <laughs> I guess it's they should know better, in a sense. The thing that really gets me, it's not business speak, though, but it's the use of jargon terms by people working in critical theory. Their entire field is focused on the way language is used to impose ideologies and perpetuate hierarchies and this kind mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. But it seems like they can't be aware that their own terminology is doing it. So that's different because, like you said, that is the focus of their... Yeah. Linguists also should, aren't necessarily hypocrites, but should be more aware of that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. But, you know, if somebody in the math department does it, I mean, if you step away from it and you're not prescriptivists, like we're confessing to be, it's perfectly reasonable sociolinguistics, right? For whatever reason, yeah. it's got this tinge of high prestige and it's, it works because people are picking it up from each other. So it is mm -hmm. a perfectly real thing yeah, and reasonable thing, but it does, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. It's just like, ah. Uh, it seems very business world to me, though. So I don't want biologists and physicists to do it. I want them to keep their own jargon and not do this other thing. Maybe I just want all of us to be on fewer committees. <laughs> That's a point. The other thing is we should not be adopting the business language. We should be respectfully mocking it at every opportunity. Just like if we end, this is not going to happen, but if we imagine academics getting some power somewhere, business people should relentlessly mock us <laughs> because that's the only thing that helps keep people honest is when they start drifting into, you know, someone starts calling them on it. Mm -hmm. Actually, I wonder if it's actually business language or if it's bureaucracy language. Oh, well, it's, oh, okay. I think it's business <laughs> language because it sounds like it's trying to be exciting and bureaucracy language doesn't even pretend. See, I don't know. If you get into marketing speak, then it is trying to be exciting. But a lot of this stuff is really internal, and I don't ever hear it in a place where you'd be trying to... I think the bureaucrats are trying to project power over the non-bureaucrats. Ah. Uh, mm. The very condescending way of saying it, of someone who you know has a large vocabulary and knows how to use most of it, is that they seem like they're trying to sound smart, right? Like they want to be the smartest person in the room, or at least not clearly the dumbest person in the room, which is hard when you're around a bunch of 
techies who can be as a group can be very condescending and very lots Mm -hmm. of in jokes Mm -hmm. and certainly can put you on the defensive there. And you can definitely see the discomfort when someone makes a joke that somehow is a reference to programming or linguistics or something like that. And like 80% of the people laugh and all the businessy folks don't. (laughs) (laughs) You could use that. For good or for evil? <laughs> I heard a good resistance maneuver used the other day. It was in a context where it's that abstraction move where you are talking about personnel issues or employee issues, but you keep referring to people as resources. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're like coal deposits or something, right? <laughs> and the counter move was referring to admin as overhead. <laughs> Well, the overhead said that, you know. Oh, people don't actually say the resources said, do they? No, but this was one of those making a point of drawing attention to the way that resources was being used. So it was sending up the flare is what it was doing. And it was in a humorous context, but it was funny. Yeah. Resources also is a convenient abstraction that makes things easier to deal with when it really isn't true because people aren't fungible in that way. Right. You know, you can say, well, we have three FTEs on this, therefore we yeah, have FTEs, yeah. Uh, therefore we have, you know, this capacity, blah, blah, blah. But it assumes that all tasks can be done equally well by all people, which obviously isn't true if you're doing any kind of specialized work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the overhead gets that wrong all the time. Uh, well, I was just going to say from one faculty line to another, Bill, I think mm-hmm. we hear this a lot. <laughs> oh. All right. So do we have a palate cleanser here? Anybody else have anything a little less painful that they're prescriptivist about? No, I think we're numb now. <laughs> yeah. Vocal fry is another one that really gives me the creeps. <laughs> mm. You know, the fashionable mm, way right. of speaking. Yeah. 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 We did an episode on that once and we all got good at producing it. Yeah. yeah. The thing is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the thing yeah. is that if you probably carefully listen to this episode, we probably all have done it. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm okay. sure. I, I never do it. I'm prescriptivist about it. I never, <laughs> I never utilize vocal fry in my speech. Well, you know, it's one of those things that anytime you criticize somebody else's grammar or spelling or anything like that, you will, of course, yourself make a mistake in the process of doing so. Right. A lot of prescriptivist yeah. manuals break the rules that they yeah yeah that they want you to utilize. I think there are split infinitives and in shrunk and white. Also, I would point out that the title of Strunk and White's book is a fragment. <laughs> is that not allowed in titles? I think that's okay. Is there a specific line saying it's allowed in titles? Is a title count as writing? <laughs> it's assigned by an editor, isn't it? I'd put a period it's, after it. It's not a complete sentence. It doesn't claim to be a complete sentence. It claims to be a title. I like my interpretation better just because it's pettier. <laughs> <laughs> Maximum pettification. Madalena, if you tell us that you don't do vocal fry, we'll turn the biologists loose on a corpus of your no. spoken language. <laughs> yeah, do that. <laughs> do that. <laughs> And then, They're going to find evidence. And then tell me which tribe I belong to. Yeah, yeah the question is, does she tweet with Fry? That's what we need to know. Yeah. That would be entertaining. We should have a punctuation mark for vocal Fry. Well, I think that's what the three dots, you know, former ellipsis is. No, that's vocal Fry. No. I use that all the time, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Though I often use two dots. I think word internal periods, like putting a period between each letter would be vocal Fry. Hmm. That's a good idea. 
I think I usually use tildes between each letter because like sort of gives <laughs> you that undulating vibration kind of thing. Oh, that's a point. Yeah, and it's big enough that you know, you can sort of hear the vibrations in vocal fry much more clearly than you can. It's a good way to use up our strategic tilde reserves. You mean to utilize up our <laughs> oh. strategic tilde reserves? Oh, I like utilize up. That's awesome. Oh. Anyway, I was going to say it's also a good typing exercise to stick in a tilde after. Right. In between every letter. And for the kind of staticky, it, it's not exactly vocal fry, but it's similar with like heavy metal vocalists that are scream singing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you put umlauts between the letters. No, you put umlauts on the letters. No, no, no. That's like oh. just the band name. To indicate the vocal tone, you put the umlauts between the letters. I think they're on the band name because that's how you're supposed to say it. Motley Crew. They're, they're on the band name to make it European. That's why we have an umlaut on ours. <laughs> well, I forget. Is yours on the swamp or on what? Where is it in yours? Well, it's on the acronym. When you spell Grand Real Ukuleles of the Black Swamp, you put the umlaut on the U so you can pronounce it goobs and confuse everyone at every open mic you ever go to. <laughs> it's quite entertaining, actually. You put an umlaut on confuse as well. Confuse. Confuse. Confused. Confused. Confused the MC. And then the poetic version, confused. <laughs> and then add some fry to that. It's just beautiful. <laughs> I think that's turning into Danish. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm going to declare that that's all the time we have for language made difficult before this gets any worse. it's too late it's too late wait one more let me just check yep i guess that's it (laughs) somebody take those away from him he's going wild no no he's doing good with them let him go (laughs) i was gonna do a light motif today So I'd like to thank our guest, Madalena, for hanging out with us. Thank you very much for having me again. (laughs) Thank you for coming. (laughs) Thank you for coming back. (laughs) Despite knowing better, yes. (laughs) That is all the time we have. So join us next time when we'll react to our upper management's most recent ask to problem solve and critical think while minimizing our spend, of course. So we'll have a very brief discussion around how to extract the key learnings from our solutioning efforts around recently surfaced cooperation issues. That was dreadful. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Trey, maybe if you're exposed to that kind of stress all day long at work, maybe we all just start being just a little tiny bit nicer to you. (laughs) Are we all back? I'm back. I think so, yeah. It's whether we're all back, not whether we're all here. So that question's hard and we don't have to answer that one. Did you read the comments to the article? Oh, that's always a bad idea. <laughs> I was scared to. That's where the dregs of humanity hang up. So has that ever happened before? Uh, that everybody got it? Let's see. I think it might have. Oh, and Trey has records. I have records. Clearly, this is going to have to be marked as some kind of lies, damn lies and linguistics holiday. And we should all get the day off tomorrow. <laughs> it did happen in episode six. Goodness, that was two lifetimes ago. That was the one <laughs> about uh, sign language. And the word for brother in Taiwanese sign language, the word for condom in Japanese sign language, and the word for love in Belgian sign language. You could reuse that (laughs) with impunity because I have no idea. Well, clearly not because (laughs) the way it was worded at least gave it away. (laughs) I guess not. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Reuse it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) Mix and match the parts and, you know, change which one is wrong. Okay. Go ahead. I'm Trey Jones. I can't say my name twice today. (laughs) Ha ha ha!
<laughs> you can't say mine either, so that's fine. <laughs> we need more spoonerisms on this show. We do. Tiberius. <laughs> so, at least in Texas and parts of the South, being named Trey is a common nickname for somebody who's the third. Yes. Okay. Okay. But it isn't common because there aren't that many people who are the third because it takes a long time to make one. <laughs> it's a multi-generational project. You can't just go. It does not take a long time to make one. It, it does. Takes a lot of foresight to make one. <laughs> no foresight. Or having two older brothers that passed away and parents that weren't very inventive. Okay, that's creepy. <laughs> but no, it takes three generations, right? I mean, my dad and my grandfather have the same name. No, the first generation is free. It only takes two True. generations. That's still longer than, hey, the baby's <laughs> about to come out. I like Bob. <laughs> we'll name him Robert. And that's how you get a nickname Bob. You know, it takes a while. It takes just some stubbornness and lack of creativity. That's yeah. It takes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Calm your giggles. <sighs> What for? How do you pronounce the name August if it's German? August. 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 Okay. More or less. More or less. All right. Close enough. And it was credited to August Bielenstein. Uh, oh, well, he's not German. A Latvian dialectologist. <laughs> <laughs> All that work. Yeah. Did you miss the tilde when you read that? <laughs> you know, next time we're going to get some kind of lies, damn lies, and linguistic with August, and Nikki's going to say he's German. <laughs> And that's going to be the thing. <laughs> the theory is called radical derivation. That flopped. <laughs> <laughs>